0: turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, shall we? And as you're turning there, let me just take this brief opportunity to thank you very much for the welcome you guys have extended to our family. We felt very, very warmly uh, received by you, so thank you so much. We're really excited to be here Uh, and really, really glad to be in gospel partnership with you and doing what we all desire to do most. Lift the name of Jesus high. That's, that's what we're about. That's what we long to do. And uh, I'm glad to be here as part of a student Sunday. Sorry for intruding. Uh, but great to be here and be a part of this. Just before we come to a reading, I want to give us just this very, very brief introduction to this series on the Ten Commandments, uh, where we're going to consider Commandments 1 and 2 this evening. And I want to start by just asking this, this little question, why is it, why is it that whenever you have some kind of mark on your face, people are reluctant to tell you about it? I had an experience just a number of months ago where I had a nice pastoral lunch with someone uh, and I had pasta with bolognese and you know what's coming. I, 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 I left that meeting uh, and I was walking along the street. St. Andrew's was a small place, so you bump into people all the time. A 10-minute walk takes 30 minutes because you're talking to people. You wave to people. Then I go to serious pastoral appointments. I'm telling people very seriously about the sin in their life and so on. All the while, I'm looking like a clown. I have Bolognese lips. Why is it that whenever we have some kind of mark on our face, nobody tells us? It's a mystery to me, you know. Absolute mystery. Now, People let you walk around all day with Bolognese lips and with other kind of marks on your face. And you know what these people say, though. for Forgiven the reason why they don't actually tell you you have something on your face. Well, I didn't want to embarrass you. <laughs> Lesson number one in Charlotte Chapel. If you've got something on your face, tell someone. Anyway, no, that's not an important one. But trust me, this, this single moment of slight embarrassment when someone actually kindly points out something to you on your face is compared to the well and truly magnified embarrassment of walking around all day with clown lips. The funny thing is, I didn't actually realize I had the problem till I got in the car to go home. And as I glanced in my mirrors to check, of course to check, not to check me, to check cars, mirror signal remo- r- r- removal, <laughs> you can tell it's been on my mind recently, I noticed in the mirror, the thing was, I was absolutely fine until I looked in the mirror and saw what was on my face, and I want to say, friends, tonight, in introduction to this series in the Ten Commandments, that is often the case when it comes to our souls as well, our very spiritual lives, we often think we're fine until that is, we look into the mirror of God's word, which sharply and thankfully penetratingly points to the reality of our condition. And I'm pretty sure that as we walk through this this short series, really exploring the Ten Commandments, we might actually be surprised to, to find something in our hearts that we didn't expect to see. So as we prepare to read from Exodus chapter 20, let me just Lead us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much that you tell us that your word is indeed like a mirror. That we, that we read it and that we see ourselves in, the, in the, the light of the truth of your holy and perfect word. And how often we look in and we see areas of our lives in which we fall short of the glory standard that you have set for us. And so we recognize, well, we need to change. We need cleansing. And Father, we come asking that tonight, even as we consider these first two commandments, you would expose, as we look in the mirror of these first two commandments, any problems with our own heart, stains that need to be washed clean. And may we flee to you, the only one who has such cleansing power. Let us not deceive ourselves and look into your word and do nothing about it let us lord truly do what it says this we pray in jesus name amen so i'm going to read just exodus 21 to 6 and this is what god's word says to us tonight and god spoke all these words i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt Out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. So tonight, really, we're talking about idolatry. We're thinking about this together and looking at these first two commandments. Verse two, you shall have no other gods before me. And verse three, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, you might be here tonight, uh, you might not be a believer, you might be here just come with a friend, you might be thinking about this whole Jesus thing and this gospel thing that we are talking about, and think, well, you know, is a study like this really important nowadays? Maybe some of us who are believers are actually thinking the same thing. You know, we're not exactly about to start bowing down to the ornaments on our mantelpiece or start melting down our jewelry and to fashion it into some kind of little calf or some other bird or reptile or whatever. But the series of this, this study lies for us in understanding that idols are not just something of the past. And idols are not just something that you see on pagan altars in faraway places. The idols that we're talking about and addressing here are in well-educated hearts and minds, friends. Yours and mine. And he, th- this is really part of the problem, in a sense. We, we have come to some kind of difficulty in discerning what our idols are and in recognising those idols. And I don't think that that's necessarily because we don't have any false gods anymore, but maybe actually because we have so many, small g, gods. Indeed, as John Calvin has said, the heart... The heart is a factory of idols. It just manufactures idol after idol after idol. And when you have spent yourself, or it has spent itself on you, in no time at all you will churn out another one. The heart just keeps on producing these idols. It's like a factory. They take different forms, but essentially they're the same. And what I want us to see first of all in this text is the invaluable worth of God. So that what we learn to do and what we recognize that we need to do in all of our hearts is is to turn from these idols and turn to the living God, to recognize that you will churn out idol after idol after idol in this factory of yours until you truly surrender your heart to the one who will truly satisfy that longing in your heart and who will engulf you in his affection and show you the extent of his love through Jesus Christ. So God reminds his people straight away at the very beginning of this this chapter in exodus and and i feel confident that i don't need to go into a full explanation really of or even an overview of parts of exodus because you've you've gone through it together indeed last year or over the past year but I, I, i don't want us to to miss any of this at all the fact that god speaks verse 1 and God spoke all these words how often do we just skip over those words and think okay we're going to get over that bit and here we go with the Ten Commandments but this is don't miss this don't fly by this whatsoever where where God spoke all these words God is speaking what's the big deal about that God is a speaking God from the very beginning of, all, of creation he has been a speaking God but this is the amazing thing about this what we're supposed to see a contrast here even in relation to what we've read from in Psalm 115 earlier on in our service remember that Psalm which talks about these idols they have mouths but do not speak these are idols that are fashioned made from gold, made from wood made from clay, things like that they are visible but they're deaf, they don't hear they they have mouths but don't speak noses that don't smell they don't do anything But contrast that with the God who, as Romans 1 says, is invisible but speaks. There's a major difference. God is a speaking God. And in response, we must be a listening people. So God speaks. He's immediately contrasting himself with every other idol in your heart. I'm going to speak to you, God says. God spoke all these words. And he declares, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your gods. Contrast is graphic, it's intentional. He reminds them of who he is. He is the one who revealed himself wonderfully at the beginning of Exodus to Moses. Having heard the groaning of his people in their slavery to Egypt. That desperate, desperate situation. What does he do? Having heard their call, he calls Moses. He sends Moses who becomes the mouthpiece, the proclaimer of the great good news. God is moving. God has heard your cry. God is active to save you. He's working in there. He reminds them of who he is, saying again, at this mountain, having experienced the salvation, the very salvation, the very rescue and redemption that he promised, I'm God. There's no need there to say, and there is no other. He is God. He reminds them of who he is. He reminds them of what he's done. Who brought you out of Egypt, verse 2, out of the land of slavery. He's reminding them of that good news, of all this work that he has done. And this immediately should instill in them and in their hearts a desire to be solely and exclusively devoted to this God who has done immeasurably more for them than they could have asked for or imagined. They were dying in Egypt. They were desperate in Egypt. And he has rescued them and he is sustaining them now. Their hearts should be exclusively and solely devoted to the worship and the praise of the Lord himself how much value friends even thinking about this how much value do we ascribe ascribe to humans who help us you often hear people say oh i'm indebted to jimmy the lifeguard who pulled me out of the water you know we do that on a natural level thinking of human beings how much more so we should do that when it comes to god and the great rescue he has brought about through his son jesus christ for us Because on their behalf, Yahweh, God, has gotten to the ring even with the strongest small g gods of Egypt. And he has trounced them, rescuing them, giving these people new life. So God, in a sense, goes on to command his loyalty. It appears the Lord God himself knows that our hearts are a factory of idols and so serves to reaffirm the point. Not only saying who he is and what he has done but commanding their loyalty in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Literally, you shall not have any gods before my face. Because this means that bringing an idol before God's face, in a sense, as Calvin went on to say, is like a shameless wife bringing her lover into her husband's presence. It is not And that helps us understand what we see in verse 5 where God says, I am a jealous God. And let's be clear here, God's jealousy is not the insecure and possessive kind of human jealousy that we often associate this word. It was quite rightly what Tom mentioned earlier on as he was leading us in a reflection there. God's jealousy is an, an intensely caring devotion and passion for the people he loves so much. Indeed, we would want God to be that passionate about his people, surely. I mean, a God who is not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care if, indeed, his wife was unfaithful to him. Make no mistake, God is being crystal clear here before his people. Because of who I am and because of what I have done for you, you shall have no other gods before me. God commands the very same recognition from all humanity. A recognition of the fact that there is only one God. That there is only one God who indeed can save us from our plight, from careering towards an eternal hell. There is only one God who can rescue us from our slavery to sin, by which we groan. And yet we reject him. We turn to our own ways and we just keep on churning out those idols of our own. Desperately poor, poor substitutes. So what we need then, I hope you see this, is God's gracious intervention to help us identify our idols. To expose indeed their worthlessness and to show us how we turn back to him. So, let's get practical here. What What is an idol? I mean, what are the things that we struggle with? Well, a good definition from a chap called Keys says an idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal that someone worships or bows down to, nor is idolatry specific to the worship of another small g god. Quite simply, an idol is anything that we love and pursue in place of the one true God. And the sin of idolatry is of course committed when we do two things. When we reject or forsake God and then secondly take our affections, our worship and spend ourselves on someone or something else. Essentially it's someone or something that is more important to you than God himself. And from which you seek that which truly is only God can give love relationship satisfaction so how do we figure out if we're idolaters or not well we start by asking questions like what is it that is so central and essential to our lives that should we lose it our lives would feel like they were hardly worth living it's a good question to ask Because an idol has such a controlling position in our hearts that we can spend most of our passion, our energy, our emotional resources on it, our financial resources on it, even without a second thought. And when it's threatened, well, that's when we start to get a little bit anxious. That's maybe when we start to get a little bit angry. And it can be anything, you know, it can be... Family and children, it can be career and making money, achievement and critical acclaim. It could be reputation, peer approval, competence and skill, your beauty or your brains, your morality or your virtue, even success in the Christian ministry. So when your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, even we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. So an idol is essentially something that we look at and say in our heart of hearts. If I feel that, then if I if I feel like I have that, then in that I place my security. And if I've got that, everything's fine. So if I've got a relationship, you know, if I've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, students, relationships are big things. If I have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, everything's going to be okay. And if that boyfriend wants to break up with me and and I've, I've put my security in him and I've been thinking dreams ahead for the years ahead and that just doesn't look like it's going to happen and now it's threatened I'm starting to get really anxious about it there's a good sign that you've made that boy an idol swap it around swap the subject could be your career could be a first class honours degree that you're pursuing if your world crumbles if you get got a 2-1 saying something to your heart could be anything could be anything For some of us, identifying our idols is really, really easy. Many have, even in this time of continuing financial crisis that we're in, it has been really interesting to see idols challenged. Really interesting. People who have put their hope and their security in their bank balances or in their investment portfolio or in their own homes. I mean, I I know people uh, uh, from back in St. Andrews who had put uh, a lot of hope and trust into their their money and what their house was worth. They they saw what it was worth five years ago, upgraded, and then when the bottom fell out of the market, found themselves in a difficult situation. It's easy to be gripped by things like money. easy to be gripped by things like materialism. You know, you want the next best thing that's out. The next Apple product is the most, you know, you must have it. Well, no, not necessarily. Our idols can become evident to us quite easy, and it, it is so simple. To become an idolater. I want us to see this. This is not something that's in the past. It's not something that really is not going to rush by our hearts very often. Actually, it is something that is encompassing and engulfing our hearts every day. And we are bombarded by our own culture in relation to the things that we should covet. You should want this. You should want this. You are nobody unless you have whatever. Fill in the blanks. You're not really cool unless you're wearing whatever. Or you're not really competing with your friends at work if you're not driving a whatever. It could be anything. It's it's easy. Pride makes a God of self. Covetousness makes a God of money. Greed makes a God of the belly. And what do we do with all of these things? We look to our idols to love us to provide us with a sense of value and with a, val- with a sense of satisfaction and worth. But the truth is, even though these things might, in the first instance, seem pleasing to us and satisfying to us, they do not provide lasting, true satisfaction. Sometimes things feel good at the start. I'll tell you a story. In January, in January... I can't remember what I was doing. I I think I must have been tidying the house or something, but I got a really itchy eye. You thought it was going to be a far more dramatic story than an itchy eye, didn't you? I got an itchy eye. And you know what? I I started rubbing that eye. And you know what? I rubbed it and it felt good to rub that eye. It felt good rubbing that eye. And, and, you know, even over the course of about an hour, I just kept rubbing that eye. And I was like, oh, it was so itchy. It just wasn't going away. I was splashing water in my eye and, you know, trying to do everything I could to get rid of this itch. The only thing that helped was just rubbing that eye. And then I thought, you know, this is just... My eye's feeling a bit puffy. (laughs) I'm going to go and look in the mirror. And I looked in the mirror. I had a blister on my eye. Okay, to me, that's an extremely traumatic thing. I was expecting... (laughs) A little bit more than that, but thanks. Uh, it's late, I know. I had a bliss. That, that's traumatic to me, okay? And I went to the doctors. They, they said, I'm so we need to give you eye drops, but they're too powerful. We need to send you to the hospital. And I'm like, what's going to happen to my eye? And the next thing, I go to the hospital and the guy says, uh, yeah, you rubbed your eye, didn't you? And I says, yeah. He says, it felt really good. I says, yeah. Poking out from my thing that he was looking at me. And he says, yeah, don't do that. It's really bad. <laughs> and it's true. You know, you rub your eye, the histamines get released. It feels really good, but it's really bad. Now, when you follow an idol and you're in pursuit of money, materialism, fame, you know, whatever idol you want to place in there, at the start, it can feel really good. But you know what? It'll end up enslaving you. Idols do not give life. Idols strangle the life out of you. Idols do not breathe life into you. Idols kill you. It might feel good, but it's really bad. Really, seriously, harmful. And we need to recognize this before it's too late. Because ultimately, you know, if you put your, your, your security in your finances or in your career or in a relationship... None of those things can die for your sins and that's really at the core of it. Because your idols, as I say, which promise freedom only deliver slavery and addiction and death. This is what we do. If you see what happens in Romans chapter 1, turn back there with me for a wee second. Look at the, look at the true effect that idolatry actually has on our lives. This is why God is so intent in saying to the people that he loves, you shall have no other gods before me. I've saved you. I've drawn you to myself. I know you know who I am. I've demonstrated my love for you already by saving you. Now, listen. And we look at the kind of effect that idolatry has. Paul explains here that God's judgment is being poured out on the wickedness of men who have intentionally suppressed the truth about God, about what he requires of us, in order to pursue idols. And the results of idolatry are plain to see in verses 21 to 25. We become futile in our thinking. Yeah, you just don't think straight. We become darkened in our hearts. Now the problem's getting really serious. Or we become enslaved to created things, none of which can save us or satisfy our souls like Christ. It all starts with believing the lie of the idol. We end up as fools who say as those... And Psalm 14 says, say there is no God. The interesting thing about our idols, you see, and help, help, trying to help you see this in comparison with the invaluable worth of our God and the really the poverty of the idols. I mean, they, they do not match. These idols are nothing. I don't care how good your idol is. They are nothing in comparison to our great God and Savior. Nothing is comparable. No one is comparable. The strange thing is these idols, we need to see these idols, they are utterly powerless, you know, compared to him, compared to God and what he can do, they are powerless to give us the security and salvation that we need. That's what Psalm 115 points at. I mean, it's an absolute mockery, you know, these idols that these people are making. So instead of worshipping the creator, they are worshipping created things. And They're just getting it all wrong. Idols are silver and gold, it says in Psalm 115 verse 4, but made by hands of men. Mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. These are the kinds of idols that people are looking to for salvation and we're supposed to see the utter futility of them. And Isaiah 44:17 tells us that the idolater prays to these kinds of images and says, "Save me, you are my god." That's crazy. It's just crazy. These are idols are ultimately powerless. Those who go after them will likewise be powerless. Those who make them will be like them, says Psalm 115, and so will all those who trust in them. Then Psalm 115 goes on to express that great, great truth. Trust in the Lord. He's your shield. He's your security. He is your helper. He is the one who's going to sustain you throughout all of your life, not your bank balance, nothing else funny thing is though though idols are powerless they are powerful powerful in the sense that they have a grip on our lives when used by satan as tools of his god defying trade, they gain such control over our lives and that's why we must not only expose our idols showing them up for what they are but actually confront idolatry head on And when we confront our idols, it's a messy business. As I said earlier, it it starts to make us a little bit anxious. It starts to make us even a little bit angry at times. And it's hard reading texts like these. It's hard. It's going to be hard reading other texts in the Ten Commandments, really. Because when we read into the mirror of God's law and we see ourselves, the law kills us, actually. It indicts us. But we should be thankful that God has given us this. Why is Holy Spirit this diagnostic wonder to show us what's wrong and to point us in the right direction? And it's from that diagnosis and it's always a poor prognosis that leads us truly, please, leads us to the great remedy that we have in Jesus Christ. Paul recognizes the value of the law as he says in Romans 7:7. I would not have known what it is to, and he uses the example of coveting, If the law had said, you shall not covet. So in a sense, he understands that he has an underlying gratefulness for the power of God's word as a mirror. But God's law was never intended as a ladder to climb to heaven. You cannot, and you will not, even if you try, achieve a righteousness of your own through climbing the ladder of the law and trying to keep every letter of it to the extent that you will say to God, just come and get me. I'm good. Never. Never. The law instead is that mirror. It acts as a sign. It points to the Savior. The one. The one who fulfilled every letter of the law so that he might qualify as the perfect sacrifice for sin that was required by our holy and just God. The one who would die in our place as our substitute the only way forward having discerned and exposed and uncovered our idols in the mirror of God's law is to turn back to the true and living God who has both revealed himself at Mount Sinai to God's people here and revealed himself in his the fullness of his love on a cross at Calvary And he is the only Lord who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And even if you fail him, can truly forgive you. Thomas Chalmers, in a wonderful essay on this, said, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. This is... It is not in, thus, it is not enough to hold out to the world the mirror of its own imperfections. It is not enough to come forth with a demonstration of the evanescent character of your enjoyments to speak, of, speak to the conscience of its follies. Rather, try every legitimate method of finding success to your hearts for the love of him who is greater than the world you need a new affection you need something else to capture your heart more than this worthless idol and who has more who has shown you more love than jesus christ who could possibly sustain you in every minute of your life apart from jesus christ what idol could possibly measure up to the significance and the worth of jesus christ there are none. Stop looking. Let him capture your heart. Your heart enslaved. Your heart that is being strangled. And let him draw you to himself just as he did those Israelites back then. Let him draw you to himself. Because there is hope for those of us whose hearts are factories of idols. But only when we realize they cannot be replaced, they must. They cannot be removed, they must be replaced. Supplanted by God himself. So even tonight, as we have looked in the mirror of these first two commandments, what do you see of yourself? Especially, I want to... I want you, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I want you to consider that question really, really seriously. What are you putting your hope and trust in? Wherein lies your security and your satisfaction? What is it that if it was removed from your life, you would just say, do you know what, this life is not worth living anymore? What is your God? Let me state the obvious. This law is not intended to save us. The purpose of the mirror, even in a general sense, is not to wash your face. You know, you go, you see a mark on your face. What do you do? Do you take the mirror off the wall and start rubbing it against your face? No. The point of the mirror is not to cleanse your face. The point of the mirror is to point you to the water that cleanses. And the purpose of the mirror of God's law is to drive you to the fountain of our saviour Jesus Christ who washes away all of our guilty stains. The only one who has died for all of our idolatry. The only one who has the power to tear us away from our small g gods and replace our evil desires with a brand new affection for him. Here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Friends, listen to this. God loves idolaters, you know. God sent his son to die for idolaters. Jesus receives idolaters. So what must idolaters do this evening? Well, the answer is the same this evening and every other day. We must repent. We must confess our sin of idolatry before God and we must turn to him, to Jesus in faith. To turn away from the pleasure we find in our idols and turn to turn from the object of our idolatry. Just as the rich man turns from his riches, the prodigal forsaken his freedom, Paul forsaking the high powered life as a Pharisee, we turn, we come to Jesus with eyes of faith, enabled to see the truth that God is far more precious than any other idol. We break the power of idolatry by going to the cross of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. That place where Jesus was killed for what we deserved as idolaters. That place where he unmasks our idols and shows them up for what they really are. That place where God alone by his spirit opens our eyes to see the one who alone is worthy of our worship, Jesus Christ. So in closing, let me invite you to look into the mirror of God's word once more. And see what the gospel does to your reflection when you do this turning to him in faith. When this repentance becomes a reality. You know, when you first look in that mirror, you see yourself stained by sin. But in confessing your sin and trusting in Jesus, I pray you would see, even in the image of your minds, another face appearing as your face in a sense melts into the reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ himself until he alone is seen for when we come confessing our sin and turning to him in faith well you look in the mirror and your guilty stains are washed away and the reflection you see is Jesus Christ the righteous one who died on your behalf on that cross as your substitute taking away that sin and holding out to you new life in his name if you will turn to him turn to him tonight friend let's pray Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see in the reflection of your word tonight where we are stained by our sin and give us a grace in these moments of worship and in prayer and in praise to confess that sin before you and to cherish again the cross as we share in communion together and I pray Lord Jesus that you would stir every heart tonight Lord to renew their affection for you or indeed for those who do not believe give them a brand new affection for you as they gaze upon your son crucified on a cross that we might be lifted up whose life was taken from him so that we might be given new life. Receive our praise and our thanks and our worship. O oh God, our only God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.